You're listening to the Rogers Waterfowl Podcast. This is A.A. Ron Jones. Chandler Smith here. Let's talk some waterfowl. You know, back in the mid-'80s, uh, I got my, my first Chesapeake Bay Retriever that a, a co-worker had given me, and uh, that particular dog uh, had not been socialized correctly and just basically raised in the backyard. Just, it wasn't really good candy. And anyway, I sent it to a trainer and uh, had it with a trainer, and it didn't work out too well for either one of us. And uh, so I got another dog, and I got started from scratch with it. And, uh, man, it, she did really well for me and trained, you know, just ABC one, two, three, and managed to really enjoy doing that. And then uh, from that point, uh, I had a job where I, I covered uh, all of East Arkansas uh, as a sales rep for an aluminum window company out of Memphis. And I called on lumber companies, and as I went across the state, I carried the dog with me every day. You know, there wasn't any cell phones or Facebook or anything like that to, to spend time with. So I had my dog with me for companionship, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. as, as I covered East Arkansas, uh, I basically went in lumber companies. And, and before long, she started going into every account I had. You know, I was calling on a lot of mom and pop lumber companies back then. It wasn't all Lowe's and Home Depot's kind of back then. It was, you know, uh, Baker Hardware and, you know, uh, uh, Forest City Lumber and stuff like that, where I could carry the dog in with me. And, Man, when I carried her in, we had the, we had everybody's attention and had the whole show, and uh, really brought me a lot of attention, which brought me a lot of sales through the years. And and uh, but what it also led to was people saying, "Man, I want you to train me one like that." And uh, also, let's find you a puppy. And so I'd find them a puppy, and then I'd train it for them, and then I send it home, and then they had two buddies, and and they want to have their dogs trained, and I trained their two buddies' dogs, and those guys had two buddies, and. Next thing you know, I looked up and I was in the dog training business. So uh, it just kind of all happened by accident. And I'm sitting right here in the middle of duck capital of the world, you know, where we are right here. It's just, I mean, you can't you can't throw a baseball out hitting a duck pit. Um, <laughs> I, I was, it's just amazing when I was sitting right here in the middle of duck, you know. And, and back then, I was training for all local people. You know, now, man, there's people from all over the United States. But, uh but, uh, man, we, there's a lot of duck hunting right here in my backyard, so it, that really helped the whole equation a ton, of course, you know. So, But, uh, but we, that kind of put me, in, put me in business by accident, and it's, it's been real good to me ever since. Absolutely. For those of you uh, just joining us, we're talking with Chris Atkin today, and um, we've got Chandler. Yep. Houston. How's it going? Yep, he's our dog uh, products buyer. And then, of course, A.A. Ron here. Again, we appreciate you... Uh, Working with us today, Chris. Now, I know you said you had some crazy, wicked thunderstorms rolling through here um, today and currently, so hopefully we don't lose you via internet, but uh, if so, we'll just give you a buzz back. So um, who all are you affiliated with now, Chris? I know there's several different companies uh, that you work closely with. I do. You know, Avery Avery and Sport Dog are the main two, and, uh, you know, we've been with them for a long time. Uh, I've actually been with Sport Dog since 2003, uh, and I've been with Avery uh, probably since 2000. So uh, I've been doing stuff for them, and uh, so those are the two companies that I've helped, you know, with, with product design and development, and um, and you know, just a little bit of marketing and that kind of stuff to, to get the all of us to the point we are today. Sure, sure, and uh, of course we carry a, a full line of those products in our store and. 
I know Houston, you're all the time ordering those. We go through those products like crazy. Yeah, um, absolutely. High-end stuff. So um, I, I know we've got a list of questions we wanted to get to today. Um, while we, you were gracious enough to break away from your busy training schedule, I know now I'm sure you've got dogs galore. How many dogs are you currently training right now? So we, we keep a little less than 100 at a time, and uh, we, we're, we've, got, uh, we've got about that right now. We've got a ton going home this week. I think we sent home three this morning. Our dove season opens here on Saturday morning, and so does Missouri, and so everybody's excited picking their dogs up for the weekend or for a little bit for dove season and teal season. Uh, so we've got a lot of them going home, so you know we'll go down a little bit before the week's out. But uh, all those dogs will be going out of here to have some fun for a while. Absolutely. Now, you said 100, correct? A little correct. less than 100? Okay, I'm glad I was sitting down for that. Good grief. That's That keeps you busy, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. We, we, you know, we've, uh, we've, got, we've got a large kennel, and uh, we've got a lot of people, you know, working for us, and, uh, you know, a lot of equipment, and it, it works well, though. We've been doing it like that for a long time now. But so uh, we got it it's kind of like a factory. We've got the puppies. We've got the the young dogs are going through obedience and force fetch and steady singles and doubles, and we got guys that do transition, and then we have got the upper level truck, which I I, I hold those for myself, and uh, and I keep those, and so I personally handle 27 a day, and uh, every day, and so like this morning I ran those guys on water lines, and we're going to do some marks on them this afternoon. So yeah, yeah, and Houston, you have how many dogs that you are working with? I'm working with one dog. Right now. <laughs> How would you like 24 more? Uh, I would not. Uh, one dog is a handful for me. So. <laughs> uh, no kidding. So, uh, Houston, what were some of the questions that you had you had put down that you wanted to kind of to get to? I know, like when you got your dog. How old is he now? Uh, he's a year and a half right now. Okay. And was he a puppy? Was he a started dog? Nope. I got him as a started dog when he was seven months. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd been just through force fetch is kind of where he stopped when I, you know, got him, but. Um, I've had a fun time training him up from, you know, then on. I watched Duck Dog Basics, which uh, Chris is actually involved with and, and produced. But um, there was a lot of others, you know, internet resources, YouTube videos, all different kinds of training, you know, tools that I had to use to move forward. And I still have tons of work to do. You know, you're never, you're never done training a dog. So that was something that, you know, I finally started to enjoy it was just learning my dog personally and what I needed to do to make him work, mm-hmm. not necessarily what everybody did for their dogs. So sure. that was the fun part of it. Now, Chris, what would you recommend when someone wants to start looking for a dog? Should they, should they search for a puppy, a started dog, a finished dog, or what are the, what are the things they really need to take into consideration uh, looking into that? You know, a lot of it depends on your, your time and, and, you know, your family and all that kind of stuff. And then, a lot of that's been on your budget as well because everything comes with a different price tag. Uh, you know, the puppies, you know, those, those puppies, uh, you can get, you know, most people pick them up at seven or eight weeks old, nine weeks old. And, uh, you know, man, they're a lot of fun, but they're a lot of work, you know, there's the potty training and, you know, and all the, the teething and chewing up everything and all that. And then not knowing that the unknown with that puppy, as far as doesn't have retrieving desire, is it going to like the water? You know, is it going to like birds? Is it going to mind the gun? I mean, there's a lot of what ifs in the puppy world uh, that, that are they're a huge gamble, uh, you know, for those people that, that understand the game and know what they're getting into. A lot of people look for a started dog, kind of like Houston did. Uh, it gives you a little bit more 
uh, insight on what you actually you're going you're, you're buying or what you're purchasing because by that time you can see their looks which is so important to people uh, you can see their style very important thing and then you can just see their attitude towards training you know if they're trainable uh, you know uh, what they're going to think about birds what they're going to be with the gun water all those type of things and like you take a little dog that's had a couple months of training uh, kind of like Houston did I mean your your uh your risk is, is at an all-time low right there because you've got all that figured out. You know, uh, I tell I, I tell a, a horrible analogy. I say it's kind of like picking out your wife when she's three years old versus when she's 23. <laughs> there's a heck of a lot of risk on both of them, but there's a lot more as a three-year-old uh, because you're, you're getting exactly what you get no matter what with a puppy. That's kind of like picking out your wife when she's three years old. Uh, if she comes out... Uh, comes out with a lot of issues there and uh, that you may not appreciate. Uh, that's the, kind of the same thing as the puppy, you know, so it, it's a little bit of a gamble. So, uh, yeah, finished dog is a whole other animal. Uh, you know, those things come with high price tags, and uh, they're not for everybody. Just the sticker shock of those things is pretty But They're usually a lot cheaper than what you would pay uh, if you had to pay out, like for me, for training, uh, what you'd have to pay in the long run. You can We, we sold one this morning. Uh, a very, very nice dog, uh, a master-level dog. Dog even had, I think, two fourths in a qualifying. Very nice dog, two years old. Uh, they had a lot more invested in that dog than what she sold for this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the gentleman that bought her was in his mid-70s. Uh, he really didn't want to try to wait out the puppy deal. So he, uh, what I call instant gratification, he just bought him a trained killer, you know, and, uh, and he's going to be in a dove field with her Saturday morning. So a little bit of instant gratification. And there was just nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, we, we sell a lot of those type dogs. So uh, it's just all what your checkbook can afford and uh, and kind of what you like. A lot of people love the thrill of the puppy thing. Uh, I've got a new puppy right now myself, and I'm having a blast with him. It's probably my most favorite dog to train every day right now because you see so much growth every day. You see them absorbing it, and, and it's so much fun to watch that in a puppy. And you do miss all that if you do buy a season-level or a finish-level dog. So uh, there's pros and cons to all of it. Sure, and I I definitely get that. And I think I maybe I'm weird, but I've worked with uh, not necessarily training dogs on any sort of waterfowl level like to what you do, but just training dogs in general that they're they're very much uh, they have expressions. I wouldn't say similar to humans, but when a dog is learning something and they finally grasp something. You, you can almost see it, and then they get excited about their, their learning what you have been trying to teach them, and it is fun to watch them grow exactly just like what you said. I'm sure, Houston, you've seen that with your dog Preacher, that he starts getting the hang of things, and you can see his excitement level increase. Oh, yeah, especially when you're giving them praise. They get, they get really excited to see you happy, so it's awesome. Yeah, that, that feedback and that interaction is uh, it's fun. It's part of the growing process. Yeah, Chris, and I know you said that, uh, you know, seven, eight weeks is what people are looking at for a puppy. Um, how about you just tell some people what kind of ages they're looking at for a started dog or a finished dog or, or if age matters? Okay, I'll kind of break it down on what, what my opinion of each one of those is and what, what the levels are. To me, a started dog is a, a dog that's been through obedience. Uh, it's been through an evaluation on retrieving land and water, birds and bumpers. Uh, it's also been shot around. The dog's been force-fetched, where he's taught to fetch, hold, and leave on command, deliver to hand. A dog is steady, which means he stays while we're throwing the retrieves or while we're shooting the birds. 
Uh, he'll do some little concept marks, like a first base, third base kind of mark, uh, just learning, you know, some basic multiples that'll come handy in the field. This same dog has been worked on some dog stands and maybe a ground blind. Uh, he's been worked out of a pit, uh, you know, with birds, with decoys, all the important elements of a duck hunt. Now, to me, I don't start my formal training process till they're six months old. So, obviously, that dog, uh, our program is four months long to go through the gun dog program. So that dog's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 months old for a, for a started dog. I've got two for sale right now, a black female and a, and a yellow male. They're both 11 months old apiece and, and very nice dogs, and they've been through that process now. So, you know, you can see everything you need to see about the dog. The trainability, the style, desire, you know what they're going to look like. Uh, you know, so you're, it's, right, it's all right in front of it. Uh, there's nothing there. There's nothing there in the unknown. Uh, so uh, that's what I call a started dog. Now, as we progress from there, we have a season-level dog, I call it. And that dog has learned to do basic casting, sent out on command, stop with a whistle and cast right, left, or straight back. And the dog's also learned to do the same thing in the water. where He'll go out, stop, float, turn around, look at you, cast right, left, or straight back. The same dog will leave on command and run some simple blind retrieves out to 100, 200 yards. We're sending him out where he doesn't know where he's going. You can stop him with a whistle and, and get him angle cast and uh, fight the factors in order to get to the bird, whether it's rice levees or hills or cover or wind or whatever, uh, in, in a pretty in a, in a pretty uh, unpolished manner. I mean, it may take five or six whistles to get to 200 yards, depending on the factors and all and the dog, but. You know, a, a pretty rough version of a finished dog is all a seasoned dog really is. Uh, the, the only difference in a in a, a finished dog, a seasoned dog and a finished dog is, is really just a little bit of age and some experience. Uh, just them learning how to like go through old falls and, you know, uh, just tighter, tighter marks, tighter blinds. What I mean is closer together uh, where there's not as many factors or more factors, but it, it, whether you go with a seasoned dog or a finished dog. So usually your seasoned dogs, that dog's had a total of about nine months of training. We don't start until they're six months old. So you're looking at 15, 16, 18 months. A finished dog, it would just be a couple more, three or four months more of training to really polish it up, you know. So like I said, I guess that's the word. Is, uh, a finished dog just has a couple more layers of shellac on it than a seasoned dog does, if you will. Okay. And that kind of, that I guess you might have answered this question I had there you were saying that you start your training at about six months. If someone has a dog and they want to send it to training, what age do you recommend they maybe look at that? Six months is the perfect age for me, and I'll tell you why. You know, as the puppy is going through his puppyhood, when they get to about four to four and a half months old, they start losing all their baby teeth and growing in their adult teeth. At that time, they'll have a low-grade fever, they won't feel all that great, as none of us do when you have a fever. And then on that, they don't really want to carry around rubber bumpers or something hard in their mouth. So as a trainer, you can get a false read on that dog if he was here during the teething process. And you say, well, he doesn't really like to retrieve. Uh, he doesn't quite have the energy we're looking for. Uh, he, just, he, he doesn't care anything about retrieving, blah, blah, blah. When in reality, none of that's true. None of it. It's just that he's going through that two or three week span in there where he's going through that teething process and giving us a completely false evaluation of the personality of that dog. 
So what I do, I just wait till they're six months old. Then I've got all that out of the way. And I don't have to worry about it. And uh, and so we get them in here at six months old. And usually by that time, I'm going to tell you, as a youngster, uh, they're pretty rebellious at that time and, and pretty independent. Uh, the owners are ready for a break. You know, they're, that's when they're letting it out of the house to use the restroom. And it takes off to the neighbor's house or, you know, it it, uh, it just does what it wants to do at that age. And so it's time for them to come into training at six months old. They they need some direction and need some need some some training. Kind of like a teenager. <laughs> We've all been there. So, yep, it's very familiar sounding. Uh, what other questions did you have there, Houston? I know you've got a few. Yeah, uh, Chris, and I know you mentioned, uh, you know, force fetch was kind of one of the last things you get going on a started dog. Can you, you don't have to explain how to do it, but just what that does and, and you know, why you should do it or shouldn't do it or what kind of opinion you have on that? Well, you definitely should do it. And it's, it's, it's actually in the progression of dog training. I call it the second month, not the end. Uh, we do the, the first thing we do is make sure the dog loves to retrieve land and water, birds and bumpers. Then we do heal, sit, stay, kill, hear, and know. All on one lead. Then we bring it, break out the sport dog e-collars, and then we start doing our collar condition just on heal and hear. But the reason we're using the e-collar is because we want the dog to understand how to turn the pressure on and how to turn the pressure off, okay, with the e-collar, okay? And then... Once we get that done and everything's looking real good in the obedience, we start throwing some retrieves again for a few days. And as we start throwing retrieves, we start shooting the gun with retrieves. Now, at that point, I'm done with an evaluation process for that dog. Everything there looks good to continue and graduate to the next phase. My next phase is force fetch. Force fetch is basically we've all had dogs and puppies that go out and retrieve out of the pond. As soon as they get back to the bank's edge, they stop drop, shake off, and leave the bumper of the bird laying at the bank. Well, that's not what we really would like for a, a trained dog to do. And, and because if you've got a cripple and they get back to the bank and they stop and drop the bird and shake off, that bird hits the water again and he's gone, well, then you just you just wasted a lot. You wasted the bird. could possibly lose it. Uh, the whole retreat was basically done for nothing. It's just, it's just not what we want in a trained dog. So we trained the dog to force fetch is to go out get the bird come back spin around the hill sit out at our side get in the pit get in the blind up the ramp whatever and then give us the bird directly in our hand and so uh the way we teach that is basically is we put a dog on a table you put him on a tailgate of the truck in the back of the ranger mule whatever and you put him up there where you're kind of at eye level with him it's a little easier for the handler and we literally start putting something in their mouth now i use a, a piece of dowel rod uh, if you will, just a one-inch round wooden piece of wood. It's about 10 inches long. And I put it in their mouth, and I just pet and love on them with that thing in their mouth. And that sounds super simple, but it's not. It, it, some dogs really fight it tooth and toenail uh, to get that thing out of their mouth. It's not natural. Well, we, we, we get them to the point where we're petting and loving on them and letting them know that's what we want. We take it out of their mouth. We don't pet them. We get it back in their mouth. We pet and love, pet and love, pet and love. And then we take it out. We don't pet it all. And we put it back in there, pet and love, pet and love, pet and love. We do this for about three or four days, about 10, 15 reps each. And then by the, you get to the third or fourth day, when you put that thing in front of them, they grab hold of it so that you'll start giving them some attention. I mean, pretty simple concept. Well, then from that point, what we do is we start pinching on their or their ear. And we put a low pressure on their ear with our thumbnail on the inside pad. Nothing major, just a just discomfort. That's going to be the word I'm going to use, just a discomfort. 
And when we do, we roll that dowel rod into their mouth. And then we pat and love, pat and love, pat and love. Well, you do that about three or four or five times on, on the, most dogs. Man, as soon as you put that dowel rod anywhere in front of them, they're chomping on that thing as fast as they can. And then that, that so you don't ever pinch on them. Well, now what we're doing is we're brainwashing that dog to keep something in their mouth. And that's a pretty rough term, brainwashing, but believe me, it is, what we're doing is we're teaching that dog to keep something in their mouth at all times. So then as we continue doing that, we start moving it further and further and further away. You know, everything in dog training is crawl, walk, run, and I say that term in all my videos a hundred times, but it's so true. You know, everything's got a progression. And, and, and everybody asks me, how do you train dogs? I said, I'm a, a progressive repetition. And it's the same way that, our, that our, our baseball coach taught us from the very beginning when we were little leaguers, little bitty guys. <laughs> Excuse me. They threw the ball through us from 10 feet. They backed up to 15. They backed up to 20. They backed up to 30. They backed up to 40. Well, so everything's progressive, okay? And, and it's amazing how fast we grew as little leaguers. And it's really, it's even faster with a dog. It's amazing how they take all this in like a sponge. Well, before long, we're actually laying that dowel rod down on the tailgate or on the table, and we start to put the word fetch in there, and they'll reach down and grab hold of it so that you don't grab their ear. Well, then as we get to the point they're doing all that on their own, we go to the e-collar, do the same thing, and we get them where they're picking that thing up off the table with low pressure with the collar. When I say lows, I'm talking about ones and twos depending on the dog, you know, low, low pressure and force fetch. But then once you get that done, we put them on the floor. We do the same thing on the floor, and then we go outside, and we just start working them on carrying it around their mouth at heel. And then before long, we get them where we're putting them at a, at a position as a sit-stay and then calling them to us, spin around the heel, sitting down. And then at that point, we can swap over to a bumper, do all this over with a bumper, which goes real quick. And then we start throwing retrieves and then getting on to them if they drop it when they come back, and that's about a two-day fix. And now that dog's force broke. And it, it sounds very complex, and believe me, it, it can be if you if you let it be. But as long as somebody understands it's progressive repetition and that nothing's going to be built overnight, it's a very simple procedure. All you got to know is what the end product looks like, and where to start, and the rest of it fills itself in with the dog. So it's it's very everybody's like, well, I think they're hitting a button to send you know something into the outer space. Man, you're not doing that. It's a very simple procedure. You just got to understand it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Take your time with it and just make it a progressive repetition crawl off run. Right, and I think that's the hardest thing for most people is they want to get out there and just see their dog, you know, do it right as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, everyone needs to understand that they're just like kids. You know, you're teaching it for the first time. You got to teach it over and over and over before, you know, they finally understand it. Yeah, that's for sure. Sure. And I, I do have another question. So let's, let's say somebody has a, a, a puppy or even a started dog and they want to, they want to keep training it some more. What are some necessary pieces of equipment that you would recommend that anybody who's going to do some training that they, you, they have? Well, when somebody gets a, gets a puppy or a started dog, you know, it's, it's real simple. I mean, you're going to need a, if you get a puppy, I would suggest get a check cord first thing, which is a 30 foot Usually floating rope, Avery has a great one. It's in bright orange. You can see it. It lasts forever. I've got some I've had for 15 years. And, uh, you know, that way you got some control over the puppy. Uh, you're going to need a, a flat uh, a collar, you know, to go around the dog's neck. Uh, you're, going to need, uh, you're going to need some bumpers. And, and bumpers are a, a big topic for me when I talk about it. You know, everybody buys bumpers. They want to go buy orange ones. And they buy orange ones so they can see them and the dog can see them. 
Well, in reality, dogs' eyes are just like white-tailed deer. They have a hard time seeing orange. So when you guys go out to buy bumpers, get black or get white or get white and black. And I'm, the black and white are my favorite because, like today, we have real high clouds. We got super white clouds. Uh, and when you throw one, if you throw it, in, you know, over the treetops, uh, like we do every day, uh, they're going to they're going to lose it if it's solid white. If that makes sense. Then when it comes down in the tree line, the black's going to disappear and the white's going to show up. So you get the best of both worlds when you get the black and white. With Avery's got a great one. Uh, it's striped and it's even got a black and white rope on it. But there's a lot of contrast no matter where you're at. But the orange bumpers are made and designed for blind retrieve work, yard work, what we call land tea and water tea, uh, all the kind of stuff where we don't need the dogs to physically see it until they're very close to it. So or that orange is reserved for upper level stuff. Uh, you know, the lower level stuff is definitely white, black, and black and white. Uh, the other thing that you may want to get is a whistle. Uh, I'm a big fan of using a whistle. Uh, you know, here in Arkansas, we hunt out of rice fields, and a lot of times these birds sail a long ways out in these rice fields, uh, and the dogs get out there and get in the heat of the moment, the chase. They pick up the duck, and here we are in the ground in a pit, bones sticking out to our head, and they grab the duck, and they turn around like, where the heck was I, you know? And a whistle's a big help at that point when that dog's up there two or 300 yards to be able to find you and get back to you with the wind and all that kind of stuff. So we, we train it from, with a whistle from the very beginning just so they're used to that. So uh, we don't want anybody losing their dog while they're out on a hunt. So uh, we, we like the whistle. So, you know, basically past that, uh, until you get through obedience, uh, that's really all you need. And then if you're going to, you know, get into the, uh, get into the e-collar past that and, uh, and, you know, that's really all you got to have. Now, some of the upper-level training, you'll need multiple bumpers uh, to do that, to do some, some training. But, I mean, even then, I mean, a guy could get away with 15 bumpers and have all he needed for the rest of his life, the, the dog's career. Right, and on the bumpers, how many would you suggest that people buy at first? You you start you know, with just a few? Yeah, started dog stuff, you get two or three, uh, two or three. I like the two-inch hexa bumpers. Uh, the black and white ones is what I would get. And if I had a dog that did, you know, some three-handed cast or a land tee, uh, I would get probably up to 14 orange bumpers just to do some advanced real work stuff. But that's really all you need. I mean, it, honestly, it's a very inexpensive sport to get into as far as equipment. Gotcha. Okay, um, so moving on, the the next thing big that I would like to talk about would be nutrition. Um, obviously, you're feeding them food, you know, once or twice a day. Um, I feed twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And then during season, are you ramping the food up? Are you giving them supplements? What kind of nutrition and, you know, health type stuff are you focusing on with your dogs? Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I believe in feeding once a day. And, and I live in Arkansas, so we, we have some pretty warm summers down here. And, and any time that you feed a dog food or you, you and I take on food, the body has to break that down. And when the body breaks it down, believe it or not, our body temperature actually rises. So if I raise a dog's temperature in, in, in my setting one or two or three degrees, and then I go out there and work that dog, I could potentially put that dog in danger of having a heat stroke. So I have asked numerous vets, including vets in, in very high places with dog food companies, and they all agree with me now. It used to, it was different, but now they all believe that once a day is the best thing. And I, I feed in the evenings uh, in that way 
they're at their coolest time of the day uh, so that their body can, can amp up in, in temperature a little bit and still be fine. Uh, you know, so as far as on our, a daily routine, we feed once a day. I guess it's long story short. Uh, as far as during, during hunting season, you know, a lot of people that do a lot, a lot of work with their dog, you know, whether they're up on hunting or they're, they're in high volume killing, uh, you know, goose and duck, whatever, that dog's going to need some extra calories. Uh, just common sense tells you that, you know, and I mean, man, we, we all, unfortunately, we do a lot of cooking while we're hunting and our dogs always seem to end up with a cinnamon roll or, a, or some, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I bet no vet's going to agree with me on that that's the best way to do it, but I'm going to tell you this, well, we just need some calories put back in that dog. He's out there working his absolute butt off while we're all standing in one place, you know, eating everything we got of our blind bag and off, the, and off the grill, and while they're out there working their butt off, and they're, they're, they're on the outside of the blind, getting cold, and wind's hitting them, and they're soaking wet. I mean, they got a lot of reasons to need calories, so don't, don't neglect your dog during the hunt. And, you know, bread, donuts, any of that kind of stuff is huge on, on for a dog as far as calories and, and sugars to put something back in them. So not, not as strong as some people would do with a power bar or something like that, but just as effective, I promise you. Okay, a whole, yeah. lot, whole lot cheaper. Yeah, so uh, the next thing would be, so for me and anybody else, you know, I, I got a dog here, you know, in January, and I've been working on him a little bit. I'm by no means, you know, ready for season, but what kind of – you know, preparation would you recommend for, you know, right before season and specifically during the first few hunts that the dog has ever had, what do you recommend that we look for? Or, or you know, I've heard to not even hunt, you know, put your gun down and focus on the dog. What what do you recommend in that aspect? Now that, that was kind of a two-part question. The main thing is we got to be sure that the dog is trained far enough along to, to actually go on a hunt. And so as long as that dog's obedience is there, the force fetch is there. You know, he's steady to shot. He's been shot around. He's picked up birds. He's been through the decoys. Uh, and you've had some time to put him in what I call a hunting environment. You know, I love for our clients to carry their dogs out to the duck blind while they're, you know, working on their brushing their blinds or working on their blinds. Say it's got a dog ramp out the front, uh, you know, a dog box on the side of it, or they're going to hunt off a, like a boomer stand or whatever and work that dog in that environment. If you know what I'm saying, if there's going to be, you know, uh, uh, boats getting you out there, or rangers or Argos or, or whatever, you know, put your dog in the, in those type of vehicles prior to season. Because you think about it, all this training we do is basically in the backyard and, you know, down in the buddy's pasture and that kind of stuff. And everything's in broad daylight. And it's just us being there. And, and it's pretty simple, simplistic stuff. Now we're going to get up before daylight. We're going to chunk them in a boat and run down the river five miles at 70 mile an hour. And we're going to, you know, with Q-beams and eight people, and we're going to get out and go out here in the timber in the dark. I mean, that is big, tough. That's, that's a completely different animal than what that dog's been trained to do. And so anything you can do to marry those two from the, from the backyard to the hunt, I think you need to do prior to season. So, uh, so, you know, just make sure your dog's actually prepared for the job. And if it's had any introduction to the style that you hunt, whether you're using layout blinds, you're using pits, uh, you're using a, a blind with uh, dog boxes on the side of it with ramps down it like we do, uh, that dog needs to be introduced to all that prior to season or prior to this first hunt. Now, as far as the first hunt, that's a, that's a huge topic here right now, seeing the dove season's opening up this Saturday. But, you know, the main thing with dove hunting a dog or duck hunting a dog for the first time, 
I'm like, man, go with one, two, three people max. You don't need a crowd the first time your dog goes hunting. You're going to have eight, nine, ten guys jump up with three-and-a-half-inch shotguns with angle-ported barrels and, and in the dark, and dogs doesn't have any idea what's fixing to happen. There's no way to prepare that dog for that. Uh, so don't put him in that position the first few times he goes hunting, or you could possibly run that dog for the rest of his life. Uh, you know, carry that dog out there with just one or two, three people max. Make sure that whoever the dog, you know, you're the dog handler. Man, leave your gun in the case the first few volleys. Keep the dog on leash from the time you get out of the truck to the time you put him back in the truck. Uh, keep him under full control. It'll, it'll make your life so much easier for the next 10 years. Uh, and, 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 you know, make sure that he can't break. Uh, we hunt in the timber every day, so what we do, we actually have a leash we just wrap around the tree. And then we hook it to the dog, and if he breaks off the dog stand, well, then he just he can't go anywhere. He's going to go about a foot, and he's going to stop right there. And so he can't get in harm's way in front of shotguns, or he can't mess up the hunt. <laughs> so make sure that the dog is, the first few hunts, the dog can see everything that's going on. You know, make sure he's out of the element. If it's pouring down, raining, or snowing, or, or whatever, make sure he's out of that. I mean, you got to remember, this is his first, this is his opening act. He needs to enjoy it. He needs to have a good time. Uh, and he doesn't need to be scared from it. He doesn't need to be miserable from it. A lot of people will carry their dogs out there and make them stand in the water a foot deep. And he's a Labrador retriever. He's supposed to do this. He's tough. You know, they're going to ruin the dog from even wanting to go hunting. And uh, all of those are things that you really got to watch for. Uh, too many people, uh, the elements are too bad. I mean, we've had even days here in Arkansas where Oakman Day has is, is got two inches of ice on the water. That's insanity to carry a dog on his first hunt like that. Um, you know, make sure the dog can see everything and, and, uh, and make sure that everybody there understands that, guys, we're here for the dog today as much as we are ourselves. And we're going to be doing a little bit of dog training today uh, as much as we're going to be hunting. It's amazing when you come back the next day how much better a dog you end up with. Because at that point, you're not worried about the killing. You're not worried about the working of the birds. You're worried about dog training, and that's what makes them a better dog. And then everybody's basically content with the hunts over and all that. We can focus on the dog 100%. It just makes them so much better of a dog. And what's, what's unbelievable about a, a hunting dog and a, and a family pet companion is to watch that dog's light bulb come on. It may not be during the first hunt. It may not be during the second. Uh, but, man, in, in some dogs happens in one duck, and some of it happens on the 50th duck. But it's amazing to watch that light bulb come on and goes, I see what we're doing, and this is the coolest thing there ever was. And then at that point in time, you got something to enjoy for the next 10, 12 years. And uh, that's when all of it becomes worth it, and all the, the, the shoes that were chewed up and the patio furniture and the dog. <laughs> so so uh, anyway, so that's, that's kind of the deal there. So, you know, rehearse the, rehearse the hunt. After the hunt and even before the hunt, if you can, the day or two or three before, whatever you can do, it just makes it all go so much smoother on the dog. Yeah, and, and while you were talking about all that, uh, I, I guess a few questions popped in my head. The first one would be, you know, common, um, I don't want to say issues, but, you know, problems that you see arise with the dogs on their first hunt, whether it be whining or or wanting to break. How do you how do you correct that, like, you know, during the hunt? Well, the main thing that people complain about with dogs that are on their first few hunts is the dog not watching the sky. 
there's nothing you and I can do to fix that except for kill a lot more birds. And you know, at that point in time, the dog does not know they're coming out of the sky. There's nothing you and I can do to, to get the dog looking out. It's just going to come with time. So just be patient. Just put the dog where he can see everything. And in due time, he'll figure that out within just two or three hunts. Uh, the next thing is, is the dog uh, actually not doing multiples. You know, when we're, when we're training in, a, in the field uh, or at home, we don't have out 300 of the finest looking decoys there was on the planet. And, uh, and you know, we've got out a dozen. And so a lot of these dogs have trouble finding the ducks and the decoys uh, because these decoys today, I mean, you know, you've seen these new XDs and, man, all these fully flock. I mean, these, these decoys today are so much more incredible than what I grew up with. It's unbelievable, which makes the dog work a lot harder. So uh, you got to be patient. I tell people, especially on started dogs, uh, Houston, you know that dog you've got? Man, I, I tell people all the time, I call it hillbilly hand signals. The first few hunts, I may go out there with, with some rocks and uh, in my pocket or in a, in a, in a bag full, and if they can't find that duck out there, you look at it, you know, you say you kill three ducks out of a group. They run out there and get the first one, they come back like they won the Super Bowl, and they, they think they're done. Well, we got two more greenheads laying out here. They, you know, they're not looking out, they're not going to look out, they're not that far along in training, whatever. Just take your rock, chuck throw out there where it is, send them, they don't know the difference. Dog run right out there, pick it up. Man, he comes back, same thing, he thinks he won the Super Bowl again. You just, hey, no big deal. He, he won't look out. Just throw another rock out there where the other duck is and send him in what you'll be amazed at in just two or three days. They'll get optimistic about their birds being out there, and you'll be able to send them as many times as you want. I know that sounds kind of kind of Arkansas hillbilly style, but I'm telling you, it works, and, and there's been a mini rock boat in a, in a rice field down here trying to help a young dog figure out what he's supposed to do. And uh, so, you know, and I can tell everybody, one pocket with a started dog, you may need a few rocks. Other pockets, need a handful of mulligans. And because you're going to need some mulligans on the first few hunts on these dogs. So just be patient. You know, make sure you've got the right group of people with you that they can be patient and overlook some things, and and, uh, and you'll be fine. But, uh, you know, you brought up that whining. When I dogs, I never, ever heard of a dog whining in a hunt. Now it's a topic every single day of duck season Somebody's calling me from across the United States, people I've trained for, people I've never met, uh, people that's found me on the Internet and they're trying to get some help. And, and the story always starts out about how great their dog is and their dog can do everything, including driving a ranger and fixing out the motor. But, but you always know butt's coming. And here comes butt. And butt, he whines during the hunt. Or even worse, he barks during the hunt. Well, let me tell you, there's no proven method at this point that fixes any of that. There's lots of things you can try. Uh, and and I've, I have curbed it. I have reduced it. But I've never fixed it. And, uh, and so once a dog ever does that the first time, you need to let that dog know that that's not what you want to see. That's not what you want to hear. And, uh, and, and, and either verbally or physically, uh, let that dog know in whatever manner you think that dog needs to get that point across it. Don't do it because if you let the dog get away with it very many hunts, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Right, and that's that's something I've noticed. Not necessarily during a hunt. I've never had him hunting, but you know, I'll put him up on the you know the stand in the kitchen, and he'll be there for thirty minutes without making a sound, and then all of a sudden he'll just start whining. You know, I've I've told him quiet. I've kind of got that into his head what that means because 
Um, he's starting to get vocal after time. It's not necessarily right at the start of training him or, or I've never had him do it while training outside with bumpers. It's only when he's been sitting in one place for too long. Well, in Houston, I don't know about where you hunt, but I mean, you know, we sit, there's a lot of days we may not kill a duck till nine o'clock. I mean, from nine to 10 30 is the prime time. And so that dog's sitting there at 6 45 in the morning till nine o'clock. So you're putting that dog in a position to whine at nine o'clock. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so you've got a candidate to do that, but just be pre warned that as soon as you see it, as soon as you hear it, you need to be addressing it. And I don't mean. Let it, let it slide because your your you know your wife's uh, dad's there. I mean you got to, it doesn't matter. You got to to, to, to make a scene about it. whatever you got to do to fix it. Because I'm gonna tell you there is nothing worse. There is nothing more miserable than to be in a hunt and have to listen to that. And and your buddies aren't gonna like it. And you want your you want your hunting buddies to want you to go hunting because of your dog, not not want you to go hunting because of your dog. Right. And and so and, and it's a huge topic. I'm telling you. And you and all trainers have a different theory of how to fix it, and nobody fixed it yet. And we've all just curved it. You know, and I've heard of lemon juice in her mouth. I've heard of, you know, applying pressure with an e-collar. I've heard of applying pressure with a healing stick. And, and I've tried them all. I've done everything. I've used Tabasco sauce. We've used lemon juice. All the silly stuff you hear, but you're just trying something. And none of it really works. I'm just going to tell everybody. Nothing really works. You just got to be consistent and more hard-headed than the dog. Sure. And at that one time, and you know, a lot of people say, don't let that dog retrieve the birds if he whines. <laughs> That's probably the best advice, the best advice that there is out there, is to don't reward the dog for whining by letting him do what he wants to do anyway. You know, and... and uh, and so uh, that's probably the best advice I have, and it's, it's probably the most unused advice because if everybody's out there hunting, none of the people want to see somebody walk out there and get a duck at 100 yards when they can just send their dog out there to get it. You know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah, and that's that's another thing I've heard was to just put your dog up. You know, you got a kennel in your truck, go take your dog back to the truck and don't let him hunt that morning. And it, it's, it, is a, it is the only way to go. And, you know, and there's, there's some things that we're trying right now to, to try to help it, that, you know, just because it's anxiety. That's what I think it's all is anxiety, and I'm gonna tell you, I think it's, I think it's the, 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 the believe it or not, I think it's the, the, the breeding is what's causing that. And and everybody says, well, you're a breeder. Well, yeah, I'm a huge breeder. We have puppies all the time, and we use our dogs all the time. We dang sure don't breed a dog that whines. If a dog whines, I don't care how good he is. I don't care if he can do arithmetic. He's not getting bred. That's not gonna happen. And uh, and so we've got to breed that out as well. I mean, because man, it's just we're breeding it in. You know, with the power of the internet, Facebook, everything else, people have a lot more options of how to get well. And your well-bred puppies are usually dogs that have got all the titles. And a lot of the field trial dogs, especially, I mean, if anybody's been to what I call a white coat field trial, you know, the average retrieving that thing's probably 350 yards long. And you know, you you consider doing a triple or a quad at 300 to 500, 600 yards long. Well, you've got to be a little bit crazy to do that anyway as a dog, okay? So the dog, a lot of the dogs I see that are doing the whining are coming from the field trial breedings, and everybody's going to say, oh, boy, he's setting himself up for people to bash him here. Well, it's just the facts. I mean, you don't see a lot of the whining coming from the hunt test dogs. You don't see a lot of whining coming from the hunting dogs. 
you see them coming from the field trials. And, it, and it's all because the field trials have gotten so difficult, the distances are so incredible, the marks have gotten so tight. It takes a dog just right on edge a lot of times or, you know, really a very high-driven, high-high-driven dog to compete at that level, which that's drive and wine and go hand-in-hand, hand, you know, almost every time. So, uh, so you know, be careful what you get. You know, I tell everybody when they're buying puppies, make sure that you're buying puppies out of a dog that you'd like to own. And if you can't say that, you probably don't need to buy a puppy out of it. You know, so, because, uh, I mean, let's face it, genetics is everything in the dog world. Yeah, and I guess while you're talking about that, you talked about crazy. Um, I believe my dog came out of quite a few, you know, field trials champions rather than hunt test, um, you know, champions, and and he's crazy. I mean, he has got the hardest drive I've ever seen. He blows past bumpers thirty yards and then comes back and picks them up. And uh, so I guess specifically, not necessarily while I'm training him, but just in general, he is super wild. What do you do? You know, I get home in the evening and he's so excited to see me, and I, I have him sit. Well, his excitement is so overgrown that he just slides around and turns in circles, and it's hard to get him to sit. But as soon as I take him outside, he's a completely different dog. How do you make sure that he's obeying the same inside the house as while you're training? Well, the, the, him obeying what you're doing is, is he's, the level of distraction is at his high. I mean, he's excited to see you. He hasn't done anything all day long. <clears throat> you come in the house, and, and you're a little bit excited to see him, and you don't want to, you don't want to be ugly to him. But let's face it, what's happened is, is you're letting some things go because you have somebody there that's excited to see you. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to see somebody that says, oh, man, there's Houston. He's my best friend. And you go, hey, you sit down. You don't, be, don't you move. Don't you do you know, you, <laughs> that talk. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so let a lot of that stuff slide. But in reality, Houston, believe it or not, a lot of that's your own fault because you right. make it mind when you're outside. You're just excited to see him as he is you when you come home. So that's just going to kind of be y'all's two little thing in the house until you decide you want to do a little different. Now, so I will tell you, if you will get control of that for just a week long, then he will mind you in the house that way, and he won't act like that when you come in, and then you can enjoy that for the next 10 or 15 years. But you have some pretty big, you got to roll your sleeves up and really get your head wrapped around that, you know, that you're going to probably dampen what you have today, the excitement he has in you, you, you enjoy that as a person. I think anybody does. I promise you my wife doesn't do that when I come in the door. You know, I mean, she's, she's not in, in circles excited to see me when I come in, but and my dog is, so I'm, I'm putting up with that because I'm glad somebody wants to see me when I come in. Right, so, right. so I think that we all that we put up a little bit more than probably what we should. Yeah, so that's so – would that be something you recommend you just walk in the house and you just kind of let him do that? Don't give him a command? That way you don't give him the option to disobey it? I just think, I just think if, you're, if, if, if you're going to give a command, you better be ready to back it up. Right. If you're not ready to back it up, then don't give it. I sure. mean, I can tell you, a dog's not doing anything wrong if you had not told him to do anything. Yep. You know, so so until you give that command, hey, it's free game. You know what I mean? Now, you say saying sit five times, him not doing it because he's excited. Now we got a huge problem. Sure. So, you know, so, and it's, and then we're, we're all, we, we all have different ideas of what trained is, and we all have ideas of what we, what we enjoy and what we don't. So, to each his own on that deal, you know, I mean, I've got five dogs in the house, and I promise you, when I walk in, all five of them are jacked up, just curious to see me, and they're all starving, they're all jealous of other dogs. 
So I got to get right here and, and be with those five dogs for about 20 minutes before I can even do anything else in my house. And as a dog trainer, that probably looks pretty silly. But you know what? I, had, I love those, I love those dogs. They're all retired, hunt test dogs. Got all the titles, and that's just a, that's just one of, my, one of my things of the day. Sure. That kind of leads me into a question, actually. Um, is having a hunting dog as a house pet, do those go hand in hand? Should they be kind of separated? What do you, what's your thoughts on that? I know you said you've got five in the house. Um, are those your, your active hunting dogs? Do you think, you know, they can be a member of the family? Do they need to be kept outside? Uh, let, let me just, I'll, I'll put it to you real, real direct. Any great hunting dog is a house dog. And then here's why. A dog that's with you 24 hours a day is going to be better in the duck blind than a dog that's in chain link concrete 24 hours a day. There's no way around it. I mean, I can walk in my house and have a horrible day, and my dogs will all just go their own different direction. And I haven't said a word. I can have a great day walking the house, and all of them will be all over me. They can look at my eyes. They can look at my face. They know that a dog in chain link concrete cannot do that. No way. And so all the great hunting dogs that I'm experienced with, I've hunted with, I've seen, they're backseat dogs, they're in the house dogs, and they're in the lodge dogs. And that's just the way the good dogs are. are. And there's, there's no way around it. Now, when I first started training dogs, nobody believed you could have a hunting dog and a pet. My dogs go with me 24 hours a day. My, my personal hunting dog now is a dog named Finn. He's a grand champion. He's a master hunter. He's AKC Hall of Fame dog. He's qualified all age. He's got all the hunt test titles you can get and did it all extremely young. He's five years old. He's laying here underneath my feet right now. And uh, it's just he's with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, that's that's how you have a great dog. And uh, it, just, it just makes your training better. It makes your hunt better. And it makes your life better, you ask me. Okay, well, we're going to use your answer to petition the boss here to let Houston bring his dog to work every day. <laughs> yeah. Great dogs, I tell you. I've been in a lot of, I've been in a lot of sporting goods stores, and I've been in a lot of hunting businesses, and and there's always dogs in there, and I can't imagine anybody uh, not enjoying having that in that setting. And uh, it doesn't work. Just tell them you got an anxiety problem, and you got to have your dog with you. That seems to work in the day. <laughs> there you go. You're you're not wrong there. I do I do have another we were talking about uh you were talking about feeding the dogs and you know the safety of them regulating the temperature um speaking about that what about uh during the season on those cold weather hunts or if you're you do have an upland dog and it's it's unseasonably hot and you're really working those dogs what are some cold weather hunt or hot weather hunt safety tips or things that people ought to be considering um, just because, like you said, you're, they're in the house, they're a member of the family, their safety is just as important as anybody else in the family. What are some things you recommend for cold or hot weather safety? You know, the, the, the hot weather deal concerns me more than the cold weather does. You know, and I remember I'm from Arkansas, so that's a, we don't have as cold weather as what a lot of people have. But, but uh, the heat is where a lot of dogs get in trouble, especially with this dove season coming up. Dogs have been laying on the couch, they've been in the back seat. Uh, they've been enjoying the office. They haven't been real physical since duck season, and now we're going to take them out and put them in a field that's usually, you know, extremely dry conditions, uh, high humidity, and uh, and and start working them, working them to death in high cover, and that's a bad combination. 
And so people will overheat their dogs, letting them do their job and letting them get their birds. And I'm like, well, I only need two more and I'm done. I'm going to go ahead and kill these last two and I'm going to get him to the truck. Next thing you know, we got the dog overheated. You know, dogs run a temperature 105, 106 degrees. Next thing you know, he's got liver failure and kidney failure and he, he's no longer with us so you've got to be extremely careful carry lots of fluids make sure you're in the shade remember you're standing in one place looking cool with your favorite 20 gauge while your buddy's out there running around working his butt off you know so keep that dog uh, uh plenty of liquids in the shade and you know just keep watching that tongue when that tongue goes it's going to get wide first and they're trying to get more air when that happens. When that thing comes to the side, I'm done. I am done, done, done at that point in time. And there's no dove, there's no duck, and there's no goose worth killing a dog over. So, so be careful. Be very careful with those dogs. Uh, as far as the cold goes, down here, I regulate everything by the ice. If I've got a ice out there over, say, three-quarters of an inch thick, I'm not carrying a dog. And it becomes a, a, a health issue more to their body than it does them getting too cold. Uh, you know, everybody's today's world, uh, you know, they got ways of warming their dog up where they put their favorite hunting coat on them, they bring them in the blind, they put them in the boat with a heater, whatever. They can warm that dog up, but I'm more worried about the physical side of that dog getting cut up or tore up by the ice uh, than I am anything. Because it is, that's scary stuff because... Our dogs don't know how to take care of themselves. None of my dogs know how to take care of themselves. They're going to go, their heart, their desire, their brain is rigged and, and bred to go, 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 go. And, and that's the way the good ones are. And, and so it's got to be our job to take care of them. That's, that's what we're put here to do, is to take care of them, because they're not going to take care of themselves. Sure. And, and when do you recommend that someone looks into getting a dog vest, you know, whether it be, you know, an uninsulated one or, you know, a five millimeter one, what's, when should somebody look in getting one of those? You'd like the Avery, you know, boaters parka. I, I love those. You know, I think every dog's different. I mean, when I'm doing a duck hunt, I'm bundled up over there like I'm in, I'm in the Antarctica and my buddy over there is wearing a vest, you know what I mean? And he's, uh, he's not even cold so every dog's different but i if i see a dog look cold i mean you can tell when a dog is cold his muscles in his head are starting to kind of contract out you know he's maybe shaking a little bit he's kind of tensing up you know those dogs you put a vest on them it really helps them a ton you know it just holds that body heat in there better and it warms that water up in there and warms them up and it really makes them makes them be able to hunt longer and not burn it as many calories but every dog's different on that you know and you get some dogs that are very heavy coated and you get some dogs that barely have any hair on their body. So you can't really lump some anything like that with an animal. Uh, every, all of them are different, just like people. Sure, sure. So um, kind of back to uh, the equipment. You know, I know you talked about bumpers and, and uh, you know, having a check cord and all that stuff. So what um, on the bumpers, you got, you know, the colors you talked about, but there's two-inch bumpers, three-inch bumpers, there's rubber, there's canvas. Uh, you got dummies, you know, you got like the docking dead foul trainer dummies. When do you recommend switching off just a regular two inch bumper like you said you use, or, or does it matter which one you get? You know, it does matter. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy that enjoys something that I purchase that'll last forever. And so I stick with the two inch rubber bumpers. They're easy to haul around, or easy to keep in your, in your, your training bag. You know, three inch bumpers to me take up a lot of room. Uh, the two inch bumpers are plenty. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, they got the rubber ducks, the true birds, uh, Avery makes, they're, they're rubber, they last forever. I mean, those things, I've got buckets full of them, big old tubs full of them, we use every day, 
and we just beat them up, beat them up, beat them up. And they just, you know, they just, they just last. And uh, I they don't absorb water. They don't stink. Uh, they, they don't have real hard heads or real hard feet to hurt the dog, uh, especially like real high-drive dogs like Houston's got. If you get the wrong kind of duck and that dog runs in on it and hits it too hard, he'll knock his canines out. And so you got to be a little bit careful. I think that every bird's a fantastic product. And, uh, you know, I, I helped him with that thing a lot. And we had, had a hand in that thing. We had a lot with the, the Hastings bumpers. And he, I was just doing all that stuff off what I've seen for the last 30 years of, of what I thought would work. Because I lost I lost a lot of equipment uh, due to stuff that doesn't work. That I, it looks pretty good from the outside. You know, I tell people there's stuff for selling and stuff for using. And all those products that Avery's got are stuff that I had a hand in. And every bit of that's made for selling and using, not just selling. As, as, as you well know, y'all, unfortunately, y'all sell a lot of stuff. It's just made for selling, as far as I'm concerned. But, but that's not one of them. That's a fan, those are fantastic products that are made to use every day. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I guess that kind of wraps up all the questions we had. But um, And not to, not to make this about myself, but just for anybody that's having trouble with their dog, um, I'll give you, a, you know, some scenarios, I guess, that I've had and, and how people should go about looking up how to fix it or or if it's just a trial and error. So um, I guess specifically was when I, I started doing force to pile and he has no problem all the way out to 100 yards. But once I move the pile, he runs to where the old pile was. Is that a, is that a lining drill? Do people need to look at lining drills to fix that? Well, force to a pile is only done to one position. Okay, that's all. That's all that is. Force to pile is a is an elementary drill that is to teach that dog to leave on command and go to a certain location. Note the word is a certain location. Now, once you get done with that, you go out to a hundred yards. That's fantastic. That's what. That's all you need. Okay. Now, the next thing you need to teach the dog to do is to actually. Uh, start stopping in route and, and start getting that dog where he can go out halfway and stop on the whistle. And there's a long line of a list of how you get that done. Then once you get that done, I'm assuming you've probably already done a little bit of casting where you can teach him to go right or teach him to go left. And it, so once you get those factors done, then you can you teach the dog to run a land tee. Now, a land tee is, is basically, imagine we're in the middle of a baseball field and we're at home plate. A land tee is to teach a dog to go to second base, which you've already taught your dog to do. Let's just do it right there in the same spot, okay? So you'll be able to send your dog from home plate to second. That's all you need. And 100 yards, actually, is even, it's probably a little bit too far. I'd bring it into about 80, 85. Now, I want you to go out here to the pitcher's mound, and I want you to put your dog at, at the pitcher's mound, and I want you to start teaching that dog to go left and to go right on your command. So put him on the pitcher's mound, facing home plate, throw you a couple bumpers over to the third base, and then put your arm out and tell him over and have him over to third base. Do the same thing to first base two or three, four times. Then start mixing it up. Throw two bumpers to the to first, throw two bumpers to third, and then go to first base one time, bring him back to the center, line him back up, you walk back over, send him to third base, and boss will just keep going until he starts learning lefts and rights, okay? Then start, you start doing the back pile. <laughs> what I mean by the back pile, I want you to put him in, in pitcher's mound, throw you three or four bumpers back there to second base, and I want you to tell him to go back. You back up halfway between the pitcher's mound and home plate and go back, put you on the blood of your head, and then have him, like you're somebody right above your head, and have him turn and go back to second base if I'm making sense. 
once you get that, that's called three-handed cat. Once you get that done, and he's coming back from that from that back pile, start blowing the whistle and stopping him at the pitcher's mound. And that's called fronting. And you get him stopping right there. Well, in good time here, after he's getting all this kind of going for a few days, you can actually start move back between the, the pitcher's mound, <laughs> excuse me, and home plate, and send him out and blow the whistle, and him actually stop right there on that same pitcher's mound. You can stop him every time. And then just give him an over and tell him to go third. It's the coolest feeling in the world to watch a dog go out, stop, and then and take a cast and go somewhere else. And then you put all this together. All that's in Duck Dog Basics 2 in, in my video series. It tells every bit about how to do that and the progression. But then once you get that land tee done, the next thing we do is what we call the five point, which if you're standing in the middle of a watch, it teaches the dog to go to three, to go to two, to go to one, to go to 12, 11, 10, and nine. And, and that's a lining drill, and it's also a handling drill, but it's called a five-point. And it's, but we do that after we do the land tape. But, but remember, with dog training, it's, it's always been very peculiar to me that if you were building a house and the guys are out there framing your house or putting up the two-by-fours today, you would never show up with a roll of wallpaper and want to start putting the wallpaper up that afternoon. Nobody would ever do that. It's almost like, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. But in dog training, people do it every single day. They want to do the upper level, the polished work, the fun stuff, the other stuff, real, real quick. Well, just remember, there are a lot of steps that go into dog training. You need to find you, uh, you know, find you a, 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 uh, a, actually a program to go by, like mine with Duck Dog Basics. <clears throat> As you go through that, it's a progressive repetition. And it'll get you to where you want to be, but you've got to wait until the sheetrock and, and, and all the finish work's done. Then you can put the wallpaper on, if you know what I'm saying. So, uh, so it's, it's a step-by-step process. And look, we're all guilty because we don't know the steps. But I'm going to tell you, when I first started training, there weren't, there weren't any video series. There wasn't any, any apps out there, video series or, or, or YouTube deals, or any of that stuff. 30 years ago, it was every man for himself. He's had to figure it out. Today's world, the, the man, the technology, all the equipment so much better. The man, all the access that you guys have to, to training and techniques and theories and all that is just absolutely incredible. You know, my suggestion, just pick one and run with it. You know, and, and there's so many good ones out there today. Uh, there's so many people have got involved in it and have so much knowledge. It's just amazing that who one is like me, I gave all that knowledge away for 25 bucks a pop. You know what I mean? It's just amazing that, that that's gone on today. But man, there's a lot of a lot of great knowledge out there for you guys to enjoy for, for a cheap amount of money. So uh, so get with one of them and, and get going and just take it slow, man. If you if you if you think you're if you think he's just not getting it, just stay on that lesson until he does. Because it's it's so much fun. I mean, is that dog like you got? I mean, man, he's gonna you take old preacher out there and you watch him better every day, man. It's gonna it's gonna fuel you. It's going to amp you up to get back out there the next day since you get home from work to do that. No matter if it's half dark or not, you're going to get out there and put one more rep session on the preacher because you know he's going to get better again today. Oh, yeah, and it's definitely something to remember. You can go back, too. So, you know, sometimes I've had to go back and put the check cord back on him and go back to the heel and, you know, sit and all the all the good basics that, you know, sometimes they just forget to do. So going back was really big for me to make sure my training was progressing properly rather than trying to force him when he wasn't sitting square, you know, things like that. 
Hey, I guarantee my mom, my mom, I'm 51 years old. My mom's still trying to fix some stuff she didn't get fixed when I was young. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a constant struggle, constant struggle. So, and here's the thing the reason those dogs are messing up is because of their desire to do what they love to do. So, you got to respect that to a point. Although, you know, they're messing up, you know, like, hey, for the same reason they're messing up, the same reason they're a little preacher. And that's what you need to remember. Yep. Yep. Well, Chris, I, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I, I think we're approaching about an hour here, so I know you've got a busy schedule, but I really thank you for, for jumping in and doing this for us today. I think it's going to benefit um, a lot of our, our listeners and our people that follow us on social media because, uh, you know, we've got a huge waterfowl following, and if if you like to, to, to hunt waterfowl, there's a good chance you like dogs or you have one yourself. So um, I just really appreciate your time today, man. Hey, man, no problem. Y'all need me for anything, just give me a holler. Yeah, and uh, just a, a real quick shout-out here at the end of the podcast. What's the name of your kennel the, down in Arkansas there? Web-footed kennel. That's W-E-B-B-F-O-O-T-E-D, web-footed. And uh, web-footed kennel, we're in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And we also have a Facebook page, uh, web-footed kennel as well. All right, so people can check you out there, and um, if they ever need any training or if they're if they're looking to pick up some new dogs, I know it sounds like you've got quite the setup there um, with the amount of dogs that that you have. So, all right, well, I appreciate it, man. Yep, thank you, Chris. All right, that's a wrap.